This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Spokane, Washington. I am the host of the podcast Transformative Principle and the author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in the ever-quiet Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for the Young, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, cybersecurity. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. It is with pleasure that we announce that the Cyber Traps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. To learn more, visit centerforcyberethics.org and please consider donating at the button on the upper right hand corner. Yes, we do like those donations. So, <laughs> yes, we know. do. Hey there, Jethro. Hello. Good to see you. Happy Monday. It is a happy Monday. I just finished watching a recap of the Boston Marathon, which is always a delight to this old marathoner. And of course, we're in the middle of the Red Sox Rays series. So um, there's not a lot of bandwidth in my head for anything (laughs) else right now. (laughs) I mean, we're lucky to have you here with us today, to be honest. It isn't that always true. Likewise, (laughs) we're here, so... So anyway, yeah, no, it's interesting. We uh, let's get caught up a little bit. I did a really fun um, cybersecurity presentation for a group of students at Miami Dade College, which was really fascinating. Um, always cool to talk about the idea of internet speech and censorship. 
and have in the audience people who have actually grown up under communist systems like mm-hmm. oh, Cuba, for instance. Yeah, um, it was a real eye opener for me, and and I enjoyed it a great deal. And of course, next week you and I will get together for the first time in what, like five years? Yeah, at something least. like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when we meet in Oklahoma City and uh, attend the PPI conference of Nasdaq. Yeah, that's going to be pretty exciting. And we'll hopefully do some interviews there and get some live uh, conversations going with people about how to keep kids and teachers safe in schools. So that'll be great. I'm excited about it. There's going to be a lot of good stuff. Um, I am thinking we'll have to talk this through, but uh, maybe we'll do a preview of my keynote on our talk next Monday about some of the investigative tools that are used to uh, monitor and to collect evidence off of social media, uh, both in terms of, you know, threats to schools, but also educator misconduct. Yeah, that'll be good. I'm looking forward to that. Excellent. Well, it'll help when I write it and then we can talk. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so that's what's up. Um, So let me just tell you my, uh, suggestion for today's show stemmed from actually my reading the Guardian newspaper this morning. And there was a really interesting article on a topic that I've been loosely following for the last few years about surveillance of kids using school equipment. Mm -hmm. And of course, the pandemic has really, uh, you know, blown the lid off of that. Uh, But just to give a shout out to the writer, because we should always uh, do so, uh, the uh, article was written by Jessica Crispin, who is one of the Guardian's U.S. correspondents. Uh, She's done work in this area. The title of the article is U.S. Schools Gave Kids Laptops During the Pandemic, Then They Spied on Them. And so that seemed like a good topic for us to address today. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, schools have been spying on kids for a long time. So this, unfortunately, is not new. But the, like you said, the exacerbation of the problem is new because of the pandemic. And that, to me, is the, the crazy part of it. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, I think that this, to be honest with you, has been an ongoing trend, as you correctly point out. I mean, it's not just that schools started doing surveillance a long time ago, but that it's been accelerating for a bunch of reasons. And, you know, for instance, if you go through Ms. Crispin's article, you know, she correctly points out that when we began to see the Um, rise, for instance, in school violence and school shootings, a lot of schools began to put in surveillance cameras, metal detectors, so on and so forth. So this concept of surveillance has definitely been growing, but very much like with the workplace, which I talked about in the Naked Employee and American Privacy, the fact that we do so much of our work on computers and computers can be surveilled so easily has opened up a whole field of opportunity here. Yeah. And, you know, there's the type of surveillance that has happened um, has been that in-school, in-person physical surveillance of knowing where kids are and knowing what they're doing. Are you getting a little popping in my audio here? No. Okay. I'm getting it back for some reason. Hopefully that's not pop free. (laughs) Okay, good. Um, Hopefully that's not too distracting to others. So the, 
there's physical in-school surveillance, which is here we are doing, you know, looking around the building, seeing where, where kids are, making sure we know who's where and what they're doing. And then there's, uh, then you bring in the computers and that's monitoring the network. That's what kids are searching for, what they're looking at, re, you know, essentially key loggers on devices that you can see pretty much everything that they do. And then now as social media has come, we started monitoring student social media activity as well, um, looking for signs of potential danger, threats against the school, threats against other students, other things like that. And then now that kids have taken all this stuff home, now we're doing surveillance at home as well. So monitoring what's going on. And even test companies are requiring people to turn their computers around in their uh, bedrooms or homes to make sure there's nothing that could be there that it would constitute a way to cheat, which that's just taking it way too far, in my opinion. I can understand some of the issues with you know, making sure kids are safe, but then if you write a test that's bad enough that you can cheat on it, then that's on you as the test writer. <laughs> I couldn't agree with that more. I think that, you know, as general background, what is useful for parents to understand is that you've got multiple technologies that are being deployed in terms of the kinds of surveillance that we're talking about, right? So the stuff that you're, you're first describing, Jethro, is, is really where this all began, the idea that we're going to have monitoring software on the school network to see what kids are doing. You know, we're going to block certain sites we're going to you know, periodically scan emails to see if there's something disturbing or if there's some kind of relationship between a teacher and a student that we should know about, that kind of thing. Although just as a parenthetical, it's amazing to me how many of these relationships actually do occur on email. I mean, I know. not that I want people to get smarter about this, but boy, does that seem like you know, galactic level stupid. Yeah. But the thing that we really need to understand is that with the issuing of school devices that kids are taking home, now we've got new technologies that are being put in place, some of which have surprising implications. So, you know, look, it's not going to come as any great surprise to people that a school might put in the kind of software you're talking about to make sure kids are paying attention that they're you know not cheating on tests or what have you. But it depends on how it's done. If it's a standalone program that stays on the device, that's one thing. It can still be disturbing in terms of how it's used. But one of the things that surprised me in doing some research on this is that if the software company uses a browser extension model, which is very common, for instance, on Chromebooks, yes. which are the less expensive solution, and what almost and if, all schools have adopted too, by the way. Right, exactly. And if you've got sync on your Google account, which most of us do by default, all of a sudden there's a significant chance that you will sync that surveillance browser software onto your personal device, mm -hmm. which means now the school's getting all of that information as well. Yeah, this is something that because schools don't do a good job of explaining what software they use and why and how, then it makes it really difficult for people to make informed decisions about what it is that they are doing when they do that. And I had numerous conversations as a principal about kids who would 
bring in their personal devices and try to do something and have trouble on the school network. So then I try to help them troubleshoot, which was allowed in our school also as, a, as an aside. So people know that's kosher, but um, these students would show me that they're on their personal devices and they have all their school stuff stuff synced over to their personal device. And I would just ask them, do you realize what you're doing by syncing your Chrome browser like this? And they said, well, it's just more convenient to do it. And I can get that. And I understand that. But at the same time, that really opens up them to surveillance by the school for everything that they're doing online, which is not a, not a place that you want to be at. That's absolutely right. And, and just to underscore that point, Parents need to be aware that if they're yes. you know, allowing their kids to do that on the parent's device, well, now all of the parent's information, including potentially banking information, private emails, even work stuff, if they've then gone and synced their work to that computer, is now all part of the pool of information that's potentially accessible. And then, you know, I think one other piece of that that, that is, in fact, um, also important is this idea that you are exposing kids to a level of surveillance that in some ways is training them for the idea of being surveilled both in the workplace or in public. And I think that, that, that that's a, a slightly more philosophical point that I've been mulling over in some of the writing that I've been doing because we have very much done the dipping the frog into hot water approach to surveillance. And now we're getting to a place where just going around New York City, if you look at the number of bubble cameras that are deployed in the city, you know, the average New Yorker apparently is on camera three to 400 times a day, just walking around wow. the city. Yeah. 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 And, you know, in, in terms of practical effect, you know, this is always the John Major, you know, former prime minister of England thing, which is to say, well, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear. But that's not the way we should be living, it would seem to me. Right. And and certainly in schools where this is this is where I struggle with this, because the idea of putting these surveillance tools into place for kids who could be self-harming or threatening others like you want to prevent that stuff, of course, but at the same time, some of those things are, are idle threats that aren't serious. Some of those things are very real. And the problem is, is there's no way to differentiate between the two, it, especially when you just see it written in text form. And even if you have the context around it, you can often be fooled about whether or not it's a real issue. And that is incredibly challenging. And it creates an enormous amount of work and investigation for the school to have to look into all of these things. And one of the, the tools that's out there is called Gaggle. And one of our board members for the Center of Cyber Ethics works for that company. And I, I think that it's important to recognize that because I don't totally agree with everything that they're doing, but their mission, which is to prevent student harm, I think is, is meaningful. And so, so it's, it's tough because I don't think that our kids should be surveilled all the time. And there are certainly opportunities where we should let kids be kids and let them figure out and grow on their own. And we don't have to have documentation of every bad decision that they ever make, because what <laughs> ends up happening, as you know, is that that stuff can travel with a student 
even though we try to make sure that those things don't in education, they can still travel with a student. And, you know, you, you say something inappropriate in third grade. And by the time you get to 10th grade, that literally, and this is not an exaggeration, that can be your second or third strike as it were. And that could lead to expulsion because of something dumb that you said a long time ago, something dumb you said not too long ago, and something dumb you said again, where really you're just a kid trying to figure out how to make your way in life. Well, and and we have so many stories along these lines. I mean, just recently, there was the case of the woman who was appointed as editor of Teen Vogue mm-hmm. and a bunch of really stupid tweets that she made when she was a junior in high school got resurfaced. Right. And she had apparently apologized for them like three years ago. And, you know, then they got resurfaced. And the question is, you know, very much in the scarlet letter sense, do we ever get to escape the past? You know, and, and where do we draw the line between those things that are forgivable and those that are not in terms of school surveillance? I think one of the questions I would have for you as a, as an administrator is, what's what's your position on the concept of hidden versus open surveillance so you know let's assume that for the sake of school safety or student safety some level of surveillance is needed yeah is it ever okay to have hidden surveillance well uh, you kind of gave that a leading uh question there but that's okay <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. I have an opinion or two. <laughs> yes. Well, I certainly do. And, and this is where I would always tell students how we were surveilling them as, as much as I knew, yeah. because sometimes I didn't know. But like you said before about the email situation, I would tell kids, if you are sending anything in email using the school email, we're going to know about it. Like it is monitored regularly. We, there are keyword searches done on it regularly. So if there's anything in there, then we're going to know about it. So don't send anything inappropriate in school email because then we have to investigate and we can't just we can't just leave it alone. If you're talking about if you're talking about drugs in your school email and you say the name of a drug, it's going to get tripped up by the filter and it's either going to be blocked and never sent to the recipient, which is often mm-hmm. the first line of defense, or it's going to send a notification to me saying so-and-so is talking about about this particular drug and here's their message. And then I'm going to need to go figure out what's going on and, right. and make a determination right. about that myself. So anyway, you know, you shouldn't have hidden surveillance. People should know what they're getting into. And as much as possible, they should have an opportunity to opt out where, where it's possible, which is pretty tough to do in a school situation. Sure. And that totally makes sense to me, Jethro. And I, obviously, there are implications here within the family, right? I mean, mm-hmm. because you know, parents need to make a choice as to whether or not they're going to tell their children that they're using monitoring software or, or filtering software or put it in place and, and sort of, I guess, what, hope the kids don't discover it or deal yeah. with it when it comes up at some future point. And, and again, I, you know, my take on this is, is fairly, uh, fairly solid, I guess, in the sense that I, I think it, it is better for the parent-child relationship and ultimately for the school-child relationship for everybody to know what's being done and let people adapt their behavior accordingly. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's a separate question from how much surveillance you put in place. But I, I think the openness is a is a good start anyway. Yeah. And, and that brings up how much surveillance, if you are open about all of it, then you'll know when it's too much because people will start to push back. But then here's the challenging part. If nobody pushes back, does that mean that it's that it's not too much? Because some people could, as you mentioned, we're training kids and most parents will get on board with it. So it's pretty easy to make the persuasive argument that we should be tracking and surveilling everything. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the right thing to do either. Yeah. And again, we're starting, I think, to get into some relatively subjective conversations. You know, a lot of this is going to come down to how individuals feel about the idea of people watching them. You Mm -hmm. know, there are certainly plenty of people who don't care, who say, look, I live a good life. If people want to watch me doing that, have fun. And then there are other folks who are like, you know, my sense of privacy says that you don't get to watch me all the Mm -hmm. time. Unfortunately, that's not modern society, as we both well know. You know, I think one of the things that parents may wonder about then is from, you know, an informational point of view, how do they find out what the school is doing? You know, will they necessarily get a straight answer from either the IT department or the administration of the school board about what's installed on their kid's computer? Yeah. If any of my former coworkers are listening, I want you to call me out if I'm wrong. Okay. Because I don't think that we have ever disclosed in any of the districts that I've worked in exactly what we're surveilling. We haven't disclosed it to the students or the parents. And I think that that should be part of the technology disclosures in your school district. I, it it needs to be. And so if it's not, I think we're missing an opportunity to be good role models of how to do surveillance correctly if we need to do it. And, you know, certainly um, there are companies and other organizations that surveil their employees and they should be informed about that also. And I don't know that, that they are. I mean, even for me as a principal, I don't think that I ever got a clear answer on what on my computer was, was being surveilled. And so, you know, after, I think probably after my first or second year, when I really started thinking about it, I just did everything off of my um, work computer that was anything related to personal. So I never went to any baking sites. I never did any shopping. I mean, maybe I did sometimes, but not very often. But, you know, it was, I can't say 100%, right? But I think that's what I did. And isn't that the point? It's hard to keep track, right? Yeah, (laughs) it really is. You know, because, oh, my God, I forgot to get a flight to Oklahoma City. Let me just do that quickly on my yeah. work computer. Yeah. 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 So it, it's, it's challenging in that regard. But then thinking about it, I don't, I like I said, I don't think that we were ever fully told exactly what was being monitored or not. And so I just assumed that everything okay. was. And I don't think that that's a bad position to take either. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting for me to have this conversation with you, Jethro, because my experience on the school board, hard to believe, but actually began 20 years ago. And so in terms of the technology that was in place, and really at the turn of the century, um, we weren't dealing really with surveillance issues whatsoever, because, you know, the, the usage was much 
more limited, and none of the kids were taking the devices home. Yeah, You began to see that problem by the time I got off the school board in 2011, both in terms of more kids taking devices home, although still not as many as today, and then kids bringing devices into school and wanting to do things. And then they would have to agree to download certain software. So we began to see those issues. Um, but your experience is much more recent. So you've mm-hmm. got the actual hands-on of trying to deal with this as an administrator. Well, and and here's the other thing. Now school board members get iPads and devices from the school so right. that they can access all their that's board true. documents and things like that. So, so that's a real issue as well that you know we're not going to go into here. But I think the important thing to think about is that this increase in student device usage has been so strong and so great over yes. the last year and a half that we need to so be talking. Rapid, yeah, yeah, we need to be talking about these issues because everybody's deploying these these surveillance tools because they they're afraid of being sued if something bad happens and not realizing that perhaps there could be an opportunity for them to be sued for deploying all the surveillance. Well, sure. (laughs) There's a bunch of different ways in which that can happen. Um, I would like to give a shout out to the center for democracy and technology, which is one of the privacy resources that I frequently rely on. And they just recently conducted some research which said that 86% of teachers reported that schools are providing equipment to students at this stage in the pandemic. That's exactly twice the number of schools that were doing so, or the number, excuse me, the number of teachers who reported that before COVID-19 hit. So you know, for all intents and purposes, you've seen a doubling of student-issued equipment going out the door. And then, not surprisingly, 80-odd percent of educators and students say, yeah, my school is using surveillance software. And the question that arises, well, there are several questions that arise, but one of the questions is, who's monitoring what information is collected and how that information is used, right? And there's all different kinds of information that we can discuss. But a key point that you're getting to, Jethro, is that schools do potentially face liability if they collect the wrong information or they misuse the information they do collect. Yeah. And that's a very real issue. And as an administrator, I was always cautious when I would seek evidence outside of the school. So anything somebody posted on social media or something that they did in the privacy of their own home, all those things were very, were very touchy areas for me because I felt like it wasn't my responsibility to reach into the family home and say, this isn't okay. And you've got an article in here that I thought was just fascinating where a school settled a a webcam spy case where they were they were looking at what the student was doing in his bedroom at home and then called him in and said, you shared screenshots from the webcam of what he was doing. And I mean, that is just so far beyond the role of the school that it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's, I I just don't understand how a, how a school could get to that point. It's unfathomable to me. It really is unfathomable to me as well. And and it's worth pointing out that that cost the school $610,000 in settlement. 
in a federal wow. lawsuit. So the financial implications can be real. When I was doing the research for the show, Jethro, I was trying to remember whether that was the same case in which somebody, there was another case either identical to that or similar in which it was basically alleged that the IT staff was using the student webcams like early morning TV, that they would get into the school at 7 or 7.30 in the morning. And because they had what are called remote access terminal software on the webcams, they would just turn on random webcams to see the students getting dressed in the morning. Mm, you know, because the students would leave this stuff sitting on their desks in their bedrooms and so forth. Yeah, no, it is awful. I mean, it's a huge invasion of people's privacy. It inflicted enormous emotional distress. I mean, imagine being a kid and all of a sudden you don't, you discover that somebody's been watching you get dressed in the morning. That's, I mean, that's outrageous. And the school's justification for having that software installed, and one of the points of it, by the way, and this is something that hackers do as well, is that they use remote access terminals to disable the light that should go on Mm -hmm. when you have a, a webcam operating. So anyway... Um, one of the you know the points of all of this is that they were able to use this software or they designed this software to enable them to find the location from visual clues when a laptop was reported stolen or missing or something like that. Now, you know, obviously, if the laptop's in a box and it's being driven across state lines, that's not going to help you. Right. <laughs> or if it shows up in somebody's random basement. So the justification is really on the thin side and, yeah. and the downside is really obvious. Yeah. And, and even if people aren't using that inappropriately, like that story, they definitely were. And that's horrible. Even if yeah. you're not using it inappropriately, it's inappropriate for you to have that kind of access without explicit permission from the user. I mean, that's what this really gets down to right. is that you need to say, this is what we're doing and this is how we can use it. And some of those features should be completely disabled until somebody reports it as lost or stolen. And then you have to turn it on after the fact. And technically, I don't know how easy or difficult that is, but some of those things that if that's the purpose for it, then it doesn't need to be turned on all the time. And there's got to be a way to, to, to make that change, or we just shouldn't have it period. Well, and, and there certainly are relevant, relatively straightforward ways to do it without, you know, getting too complicated about it. You basically have the two human verification <laughs> approach, mm-hmm. like the nuclear codes, right? Yeah. Before a, a really dangerous feature can be turned on, you need an employee and a supervisor to both say that this needs to be done. And there should be some logging of that decision. Look, another approach that every parent should consider if their kid brings home a Chromebook or something like that is to put one of those privacy sliders over the webcam. So, you know, obviously the kid needs the camera to do class and so forth. But when the child is not in class, they should definitely close off the webcam because, you know, it's not just rogue schools, which fortunately I think are exceedingly rare, but it also reduces the likelihood that some 
hacker is going to use rat software. I love the fact that it's called that. Yeah. Um, is going to use remote access terminal software to spy on the kid or basically start some kind of sextortion type activity. Well, and this also brings up another point of should kids have devices in their bedrooms and you know, that in my house, at least we don't take devices into our bedrooms. Um, and that's just what the rule is, unless there's a very specific reason that you are using it in there. And there's still some sort of supervision happening to make sure that that kind of stuff that you're talking about is less likely. So, yeah, yeah. you know, that is exceptionally hard during pandemic schooling where kids, you know, you've got two or three kids at home and you can't have everybody sitting around the kitchen table with all their different zoom calls going on. I mean, that would just be pure madness. Even if they have headphones in, that would be a challenging situation. Um, So it's, it's not an easy answer, but certainly it's another way to safeguard and, and keep private things private. If I recall correctly, we've both come down fairly strongly on the idea of keeping devices outside of the bedroom as much as possible. And I think that, it is good that you raise these important points because one of the aspects of this problem, which is frustrating, is that a student's economic status plays, it plays a role or is a factor in the degree to which they're potentially subject to surveillance. So, for instance, you know, it is more generally speaking, it is more likely that better off students will use their own devices, which they may prefer prefer because of the capabilities and so forth. But those devices are less likely to have the kind of monitoring software that a school Chromebook will have. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one person can basically opt out of the surveillance and someone else can't do so. And then also in terms of the amount of physical space that a student has to do his or her work, that's going to vary based on economics as well. Yeah. If you live in an apartment building, uh, in an apartment with another family and there's eight kids there, I mean, that's impossible. And I've had students who have lived in that kind of a situation and you're not going to have any privacy to begin with. And, you know, but then you're exposing other kids to the potential of, you know, sharing devices and things like that. And, you know, it just, it, it definitely puts those who are, less fortunate at a severe disadvantage in all of these regards. And, you know, that is yeah. a, is an, is an issue as well. So definitely well, something to uh, be thinking I watched about. My, absolutely. And, you know, my, my go-to example in all of this Jethro is, is my sister who has a third floor apartment with five rooms and three daughters all yeah. in school. <laughs> so I, and sometimes actually she's, mostly still working from home. Mm-hmm. I have literally no idea how she does it. It's, it's just crazy. Yeah, definitely crazy. And I, and I think we've, we need to pay attention to those people who are in that situation that it, it is not the typical single family home with every kid having their own bedroom and a TV right. and their own computer in their bedroom. I mean, that just is not everybody in the United States um, and certainly not everybody around the globe too. But we're mostly just talking about the United States here. Of course. Well, I think that I would encourage parents to reach out to their school administrators 
I, you're going to love this as a former administrator, but to try to get some information about the kinds of software that uh, is installed on their kid's computer so that they can make an informed decision about how that should interact with their family life. I do want to let people know that I've listed some of the legal issues that can arise as well as some of the regulations and statutes that govern this area of the law. Uh, as always, there's a bunch of information in our show notes, and I certainly encourage people to take a look at it. Yeah, the show notes are gold. Definitely check that out, cybertraps.com. <laughs> there's so much good stuff in there. We can never cover everything that Fred puts into the show notes, but they are awesome. It, it, it is one of my favorite parts of the week, Jethro, so thanks for the <laughs> uh, shout out. <laughs> All righty, folks, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, surveillance by everybody under the sun, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you will share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have topic suggestions or guest suggestions. We'd love to hear from you. If you would like to reach out to us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this episode. If that's the case, please leave us a five-star rating and review. And we look forward to seeing you on Monday for our live show. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.